Well, good morning to you, Grace. It's great to see you this morning. Welcome to the Sunday where we pull random people out of the audience to uh, do things up here. So uh, someone else is going to preach. Who should it be? Ed and Lori already left, and so <laughs> someone else someone else has got to do it here. Well, uh, I want to thank our pastor emeritus, Brian Smith, and uh, Anthony Cassis for two excellent sermons in the last two weeks. I appreciate their ministry. And uh, today we return to our regularly scheduled program, and that is studying through the great book of Philippians. So would you turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, Philippians 3, and we're going to jump right into it, but you need a little bit of background of the history that's happening here so that we can understand uh, Philippians 3. So if you haven't already noticed this, uh, you will come to find out as a Christian that uh, Christians often like to argue about things that don't matter to God one bit. (laughs) Have you experienced that yet? Some Christians like to fight tooth and nail about things that don't matter to God one single bit. The music's too loud, the music's too soft, the subwoofer's too big, the subwoofer's too small. We need to put a cross on the wall. We shouldn't put a cross on the wall. The eggs at the men's breakfast need to have cheese. No, the eggs at the men's breakfast do not need to have cheese in it. Men must not wear shorts in church. You must wear a tie to church in order to be a Christian. You know, all that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> and often, it's, it's we take what we like, and we just assume that God likes what we like, you know? And we, with conviction, uh, say God wants it to be like this just because we, you know, want it to be like this. And music, you know, worship music is often uh, the, same, the same way. Uh, I grew up in a church where we sung hymns out of a hymnal Sunday morning, sung hymns out of a hymnal Sunday night, and sung hymns out of a hymnal on Wednesday night. And so, it could be easy for me to say, okay, well, God likes hymns, and that's the only way that he could be worshipped is through hymns, so church is hymns only. But then someone else could say, well, but yeah, in my church, I grew up and we sung in church all the songs that we heard on the Christian radio station through the week, we sung in church on Sunday morning, and so that's the way that God wants to be worshipped, you know? We always just kind of want it our way, or our tradition, or the things that we're comfortable with, or the things that we grew up with. There's one thing that we know, God doesn't like country music, everything else we're not quite sure about. <laughs> okay, so, so even before all of, all of that, Christians in the first century found things to argue about too, and, but they weren't this list of things that we argue about today. The things that, that it, they argued about back then were two things, circumcision and diet. Those were the two central issues where there was a lot of clashes. And you remember from last summer, we studied the book of, of, uh, of Galatians. And in Galatians, that was the issue in that church as well. It's, a, it's an issue in the first century through all the Christian communities. And so you remember Paul addresses in Galatians, he addresses circumcision like this. He says, behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. So here's what's happening. You have Jews that are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're putting faith in him. They're getting saved. And Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, are hearing the gospel and they're getting saved and they're all going to church together. And the Jews are telling the Gentiles, you Gentiles need to be like us in order to be really saved. And so, you Gentiles need to become circumcised like me, and then you're really saved. And so then Paul says, okay, uh, I want to think about that for just one minute, and uh, if you're going to go the whole circumcision route, I know that that's comfortable for you. I know that's your family tradition. I know that's what you've done all along. But if you're going to go, you can't just pick your pet uh, law. You have to go with the whole law. As soon as you're going to buy into the law, as soon as you're going to try to do it works by the law, you've got to do the whole thing, not just part of it. And so he addresses circumcision. And then he addresses diet, the other thing that was often a, um, a, div- a, 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 place, a, a place of division 
in, uh, in Christianity in the first century. He says this, I opposed Peter to his face. He used to eat with the Gentiles, but when he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, the rest of the Jews joined him in his, his hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles, meaning free from the law, because he's now in Christ, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, then how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews and be under the law? How is that even a thing? And this, of course, goes back all the way back to the, the Mosaic law, the 613 laws, 613 lists of rules and, and, and of do's and don'ts. And there were dietary laws, long list of them. And those dietary laws held on for many, 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 many generations. Like, you, you can't eat bacon. You can't eat shrimp. No Skittles. Bummer. I like Skittles. And so, so Peter is going to church with Jews and Gentiles. And they have a communal meal, and he pushes away from the table. He stands up, and all the other Jews follow him, insinuating that the Gentiles are eating things that prove that they're not saved. The Gentiles are just doing what Gentiles do. They're eating their bacon-wrapped shrimp with Skittles as dessert. And so when, when he pushes away from the table and says, we're not eating with you Gentiles because you're eating that, he's insinuating that the dietary laws mean salvation and you Gentiles need to be like us, the Jews. You need to follow our traditions in order to really be saved. But the, the gospel is not law. The, the gospel is, is not religious duty. The gospel is grace. The gospel is faith. But these are the issues, the two key issues that were going on in the day. And so then there has been a question ever since the time of Jesus Christ. The question still exists today. Well, what about those laws? Are, are those laws, do they still apply today? Or did Jesus fulfill them and they don't matter anymore? Which is it? This is an important question to answer. And the answer to this question, what about these laws? Do they, do they apply today or do they not apply today? The answer is, it depends. It depends. It depends on how you understand the law. If you, how you understand these 613. Are these 613, are these rules, are they the way to God? That by following the laws, that's how you get to God. Are are the laws the way to God? Or are these laws pointing the way to God? Which is it? This is a very important question to answer. Is it the way to God or pointing the way to God? And so when these Jews in the first century, when they got saved in the church, they thought they knew the answer to that question. The, the purpose of the law, the Mosaic law, was the way to God. If I do these things, then I'm saved. And so they had a genuine concern for their Gentile friends. They really wanted them to be saved. It's not like you know, they, they, they didn't like them. They really wanted someone to be saved. And so they wanted them to follow all of their traditions, all their family traditions. They were comfortable with them. You need to follow all of them just to make sure that you're really serious about this thing of salvation. But that's not the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is not the way to God. The purpose of the law points the way to God. Because the purpose of the law is to show that you can't be perfect. You can't keep the entire law. A person begins to realize, I can't be perfect all the time. I mean, I can maybe be perfect for like a, a millisecond or maybe a second or maybe two minutes or maybe while I'm sitting in church or something like that. But I can't be perfect all the time. It's like a, someone that's dog paddling in a giant, in the Pacific Ocean and, and trying to keep their head above water and sometimes you can and sometimes you guzzle some water, sometimes your head is underwater and after a while you realize, I can't be good enough, I need to find someone who is. And then of course that's Jesus Christ. And so the law, the purpose of the law is to show you that you aren't perfect and that you need to find someone who is. That's Jesus Christ. 
That's the purpose of the law and all the things that are in the law. Now, that's a pretty long introduction so that we understand what's happening, but it's necessary. Let's now read the passage that we're going to study today in Philippians. Philippians uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 11 are what I hope to cover today. It says this, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and the glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, even if, if everyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, well, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, well, I'm a persecutor of the church. Well, as to the righteousness which is in the law, well, I'm found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost and view the surpassing value knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. All right, well, that's our passage for today. As you can tell, there's a lot there. Let's go back to verse 1 and begin to learn what Paul is teaching these people. He says, finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you again is no trouble for me. So he's, re- he's repeating himself. You're like, okay, what's the again? Well, he's addressing an issue that he's already addressed before, but in just a little different way and even a more specific way. And I think what he's referring to back is Philippians 1, 27 and 28. And so you could see those verses for yourself in Philippians 1. In 27 it says, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you again or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents. This is what he is talking about, the opponents. Standing firm despite the opponents that they, are, that they have. And their opponents are preaching circumcision. Their opponents are preaching the diet. Their opponents are preaching wear a tie to church. The opponents are preaching give enough money to the church and then you're good. They're preaching works. Their opponents are preaching salvation by works. And so he says in here, he says that this is a safeguard for you. It's not going to be a problem for the Philippian church for them to hear this. They love Paul. Paul loves them. And so they're going to see this message that he's giving them in this section for what it is. This is like protective encouragement. It's not like this church is falling down the same road as the rest of the culture, but he's wanting to protect them. He realizes that they are fighting these opponents that are teaching these things. And so then he says in verse 2, he says, Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision, for we are of the true circumcision. So circumcision was the real line in the sand when it came to the gospel. That that was the line that was drawn. Either you got circumcised and you were saved, and if you didn't get circumcised, what? That was the line. Now, you kind of have to imagine how this is happening. Let's just pretend for a moment that we are all Jewish males, just, just for a little bit, okay? Let's pretend we're all Jewish males, just for a little bit. And so Jewish males, as a result of the uh, covenant with Abraham all the way back in Genesis uh, 15, they circumcised their boys on the eighth day. And so you being a, a, a male Jew, you got circumcised when you were eight days old. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I don't remember anything from when I was eight days old. Do you? No. All right. So then you grow up, and you're 40-ish now. You have a wife. You have some kids. And you hear this gospel, this new gospel that you've never heard before about Jesus being the Savior of the world. And you put your faith, your trust, your belief in Jesus being the Messiah. You put your faith in him. But you still believe that being circumcised is necessary for salvation. And so that's what you're preaching. And so you're preaching, get circumcised, because you care about your Gentile. You want them to be saved. And so you're preaching the message of get circumcised. So you're preaching this message. Now, remember, the people who are hearing this message are also 40 years old. And so for a dude who's 40 years old to hear the message of circumcision, that's going to be pretty limiting to the gospel. You know what I mean? That's going to be pretty hard for that guy to buy into. You know? I mean, it's easy for you. you yeah, you, yeah, I know you. You were circumcised. You don't remember it. But this dude is like sweating over it. And so this is going to be very limiting to the gospel. Not only that, but it's antithetical to what the gospel is. The gospel is not about the law. It's about grace. The gospel isn't about religious duty. It's about faith. And so he calls these people who are preaching the message of circumcision, he calls them dogs. Dogs. Now, he isn't talking about your cute little labradoodle or doberman doodle or cockapoo or whatever (laughs) slobbery, lazy thing you have laying on your floor right now at home. That's like, that's one word in the Greek. That's a word that, you know, a pet dog, that's that's a word in the Greek. But that isn't the word that's used here. This is a different word. This is a word for like mangy mutt. This is like a, 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 a dog who's aggressive that has to survive on its own. It's the kind of dog where when it's running around your neighborhood, you don't go out to it and say, oh, honey, let's go find your, your owner. It's the one that you go inside and lock your door and hope it leaves. It's that kind of dog. It's the kind of dog that runs in packs. It's the kind of dog that feeds off of trash uh, in the neighborhoods. It's that kind of dog. And so he uses this term, dogs, as a derogatory term to define those people that are preaching the salvation of works, that are preaching the salvation of get circumcised and then you're saved, of eat the, eat the right diet and then you're really saved, wear the right tie to church and then you're really saved, to, to do these things and then you're really saved. He calls them dogs because they're aggressive, because they're dangerous, because they need to be uh, avoided. And so he calls them dogs. And he says then in verse 4, or verse 3, he says, for we are of the true circumcision. There's a false circumcision, this external mark that's in some way, uh, some people think that there's some spiritual um, application to that, but no, that's a false, that, 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 that is, there's false spirituality there. But we are of the true circumcision. So Paul and this church and all Christians are all circumcised spiritually. They are cleaned out from the inside out internally. That's the true circumcision. And so both males and females are spiritually circumcised by Christ because of the cleansing that occurs through salvation and the Holy Spirit coming and living inside of you. Now, these kind of dogs that he mentions here, these kind of dogs still exist today. There are people, and some of them are standing in pulpits this morning, and they are preaching this same message of here's a list of things that you need to do and then you're really saved. And they preach that message because it's an easier message to preach, you know? Like we humans, we like a list of things to do, and once we check those things off the list, then we know we're good. And so if there's a list of things, like, all I have to do is wear a tie and show up, you know, three out of four times a week and give uh, 10% of my money, then I'm good, right? There are pastors today in pulpits in, in Riverside 
that are preaching that if you don't get baptized, then you are not saved. It's just another works-based salvation. That's not circumcision, that's baptism. There are pastors in churches in Riverside today that are preaching that if you don't speak in tongues, a spiritual language, you are not saved. That's, it's just a, a new version of the same law, works-based salvation. There are pastors in pulpits today in Riverside that say, if you don't agree and accept with the homosexual lifestyle is wonderful, then you are not a Christian. It's, it's just another works-based salvation. There are, there are pastors and pulpits today that are preaching that you have sinned too much and you have lost your salvation and you have backslidden out of your eternal security into eternal damnation instead. If works can get you out, then works can get you back in and you did enough bad things to get out of it, now you better get back into it. It's just another way of preaching works-based salvation. There are pastors today in Riverside that are preaching, hey, you just need to have a little bit more faith. A little bit more faith, oh, and give us some money, and then God's blessings will come to you. It's just another form of works-based salvation. This is nothing new. It happens, it happened in the first century. It happens all of the time because it's an easier gospel to preach. Here's a list of things to do, and once you do them, check, 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 then I know. I'm good because I've attained all of the religious credits that were required that were told of me, and now I'm good. And Paul says of these religious credits, verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Paul says that if it's about religious credits, I got you beat. If it's about religious credits, I, I, am, I am better than you. If it's about religious credits, I have the high score. If anybody could have earned their way to heaven, it would have been Paul. That's what he's saying. If anybody can earn their way to heaven, Paul, Paul did, could have done it. And he gives his list of credentials. Verse 5, look at the credentials that Paul gives of how great he is. Circumcised on the eighth day. Well, lucky him. <laughs> At least it wasn't at 40. <laughs> of the nation of Israel. That means I'm a Jew. Jesus is quite literally my Messiah. He was promised to my people back in Genesis chapter 3. That might not seem like a really big deal to, to you, but that's something more than the Gentiles could say, right? Of the nation of Israel. Of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin is one of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were only two tribes that didn't go bad. The tribe of Benjamin was one of them, didn't go bad. So he's of that tribe. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. Well, he just, he's just, just saying, I'm the Jewiest Jew of all the Jews out there. <laughs> just putting it in modern, that's what he's saying. I am, the Jew, I, I am the top Jew that you could imagine. And he goes on to describe that description even more. He says, as to the law, well, I'm a Pharisee. A Pharisee is one of these religious leaders that keeps all the laws, all of them. The Pharisee keeps the 613 in the Old Testament. He keeps those laws. Not only that, he also keeps the laws of tradition. The Jews have added some laws just based on their tradition. So they keep the, the, the 613, and they keep the laws of tradition. Not only that, uh, the scribes added a few more laws just in case. And so, and so they keep all of these laws. Now, I know to you the word Pharisee is like has this connotation of hypocrite. And the only reason that you have that connotation in your mind is because you have read scripture, you have heard what Jesus said about the Pharisees, because the Pharisees, they were on the outside very pious. They were on the outside very religious. They were on the outside keeping the, all these lists, but on the inside, they were just as evil as everyone else. They just didn't want to admit it. And so, you kind of know hypocrisy associated with this word Pharisee, and you're still like, why would Paul claim to be a hypocrite? Well, but see, that's not the way that it was in the first century. In the first century, when someone said, I'm a Pharisee, everybody's like, ooh, he's a Pharisee, no way. 
And so that's why, because he was. Um, he was a Pharisee. Verse 6, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. He had a zeal for the Lord, albeit a misguided zeal. But he had such a zeal for God that he went out and he persecuted Christians. He threw dads in jail. He killed other Christians because, because the Jews saw Christianity as, a, as an affront, as an attack against their God. And so out of zeal, he went out and persecuted Christians. He has, everybody else would just talk about it, would just talk about doing it, would just talk about how bad those Christians are. No, 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 he went and did it. He, has the, he, he is the Jewiest Jew of all the Jews. And on top of that, as to the righteousness which is in the law, I'm found blameless. Now, it's not saying that he never sinned, because that would run contrary to the other things that he's admitted to in Scripture. <laughs> but he's just saying that I'm the model Jew. If anybody could get to heaven based on the, the religious credits, I'm going. If anybody could do it by doing the good things, by going to church a certain amount of times, and by giving a certain amount of money, and by wearing a tie, and not wearing the shorts, and making sure there's cheese in the eggs, I'm going. I'm set. These are his credentials. And sometimes Christians think the exact same way. I, I can easily identify with this. Look, I, I was born in a Christian family. I was in church before I was seven days old. I went to church every single week. As I already mentioned, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. And then, as soon as I could teach Sunday school, taught Sunday school. I mean, in here at Grace Community Church, we'd call it interning. You know. And then, I get married. I've never cheated on my wife. I'm a pretty good dude. And then I'm the most honest person at my job. I'm the most honest person there. I mean, you should listen to what Pastor Chuck and Pastor John say. I mean, they are, they are evil scoundrels compared to me. I'm a pretty good parent, and those things are wonderful things. But if you think that that's going to get you to God, Paul is going to start poking holes in that titanic of a theory. Verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. After all that long list of religious credentials, Paul considers it all lost. Like, <laughs> like I, I, I abandon it. I don't, it it's, it's trash to me. As a matter of fact, that is what this word loss is. It's a Greek word. It's damage or loss from war. Like just garbage. Complete unusable trash. That long list of things is now garbage. It used to mean a lot to me. I used to own it. I used to be proud of my heritage, and I used to think that my bloodline got me somewhere. I used to think all of my good works were the things that, that were getting me credits to God, but now I, it's trash. It's, it's garbage. And he says, if you think that you're going to get to heaven because of, of your circumcision, or if you think that you're going to get to heaven because you got baptized that, that one time, or if you think that you're going to get to heaven because you got confirmed when you were a kid and you were going to Sunday school at that one church, or if you think that you're going to go to heaven because you gave a certain amount of money to church or because you started to serve at Grace Community Church, or if you think you're going to get to heaven because you uh, pray for your meals, at least on Thanksgiving, I got you beat. I got more credits than you. I am better than you. I, I, if anyone's getting to heaven on what they do, it's me, not you. And he says, I would trash all that stuff for the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. It's all lost. I, I used to own it. It's trash. I don't care about it anymore. But he goes further than that, even further than that, verse 8. Verse 8. More than that. I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. He calls it all rubbish. You know what that word means? That's a Greek word. Of course, this is written in the Greek, Greek word. Skubala. Skubala. It's a Greek word. Skubala means excrement. Skubala means dung. I'm sure you can think of some other four-letter words that might, you know, fit in with that too. 
scubala. What does he consider rubbish? What does he consider scubala? This long list of things, the list of good works, the, the family heritage that he has, his, his bloodline and his experiences and the self-discipline he had, it's all scubala. It's not just loss. It's not just like I lost it. It's not just that I consider it trash. It is excrement compared to how wonderful Jesus Christ is. It's scubala, the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. And notice it says that, um, that because of the, uh, the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord, for whom I have suffered loss of all things. Notice that, that Paul is suffering enormous loss, and he is suffering enormous loss. I mean, not only in Christ has he in some way lost his, his heritage. He doesn't need his, his Jewish heritage. He doesn't need all of his, um, his background. He doesn't need all of that work anymore. That's all lost. But, but he's lost a lot of other things too. He's, remember, he's in jail. He's under house arrest. He is being tried for a felony, which if he's convicted would mean the death penalty. He is lost an enormous amount up until this point, and the Bible tells us that he's going to lose even a lot more after this. Isn't that interesting? Th- there was no loss before this. There was no loss of being a part of the family line. There was no loss of being a, the Jewish Jew of all the Jews. There was no loss in, in being a persecutor of Christians. There was no loss in, in being uh, found righteous according to the law. There's no, there was no loss in any of that, but now all of a sudden, because of Jesus Christ, everything is now, he is losing it all. He is sacrificing it all. Why is that? because of the surpassing value of Jesus Christ. That's why. Christ is so much more valuable than any of that stuff. All that stuff is scubala. So the title for today is Religious Credits Don't Impress God. But this does. That's the title. Religious Credits Don't Impress God but this does. We already understand that all of the religiosity of the day, the circumcision and the diets, those things are not impressive to God at all. Those bring no righteousness. Those don't get you to heaven. There is nothing there that, that God is interested in at all. But there is something that God is interested in. There is something that does bring righteousness, and that's verse 9. Verse 9 is why I titled it the way I did. Look at verse 9. It says, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Where does righteousness come from? Righteousness comes from faith. Does your righteousness come from your baptism? No. Does righteousness come from you wearing a tie to church? No. Does baptism come, or does righteousness come from giving a certain amount of money to Grace Community Church? No. Does righteousness come from serving in ministry at Grace? No. Does righteousness come from being born in a family where, man, we're a really good family. My grandma, if anybody's going to heaven, it's my grandma's going to heaven. No. There's no righteousness there. Where is righteousness found? It says here, through faith in Christ. That's where righteousness is found. Faith in Christ. Now, who is this Christ? Sometimes we think of Christ as like Jesus' last name, you know, like Jesus Christ. But Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is just a, descript- a further description of who he is. Christ means anointed or the anointed one. So Jesus, who is the anointed one, Jesus, who is the Messiah, that is what Christ means. So it's faith in Christ. So faith is just, conviction that something is true. It's, it's belief that something is true. And we, do, we have faith all the time, like all the time. And examples are throughout our life. Examples are used all the time in churches when we talk about faith. One of them is when you came in and you sat down in your chair. You didn't even think about it. You just sat in your chair. You had faith. You believed that that chair was going to hold you up. You didn't think about it. You didn't wonder. You didn't test it. You didn't ask questions. You just sat down. Because you had faith. You had belief. 
But we have faith all the time. When you drove down Van Buren and your light was green, you had faith that those other people on the red lights were going to stop. You had faith in that. We have faith all, faith occurs all of the time when you woke up this morning and you plugged in that thing into the wall that was going to make you look the way that you look. You had faith that that thing was going to energize in whatever way it's going to energize to make you look the way that you're going to look. When, when you turned on the shower and you turned it to hot, you had faith. You didn't, you didn't go down and you didn't go light a fire and, and you know, put a pot over the fire because you weren't sure if you were going to get hot water this morning. You just turned it on. You had faith. We have faith all the time. In our life, I, probably you've committed acts of faith probably about three or 400 times just in the morning before you got here. But then we all of a sudden have a problem when it comes to faith in Jesus Christ being our Savior. It's kind of weird, isn't it? We have faith all the time. And this is where righteousness comes from. Not faith in your shower, not faith coming down Van Buren, but a convicted belief that Jesus is the anointed one, that Jesus is the Messiah. That is where righteousness comes from. On the basis of faith. The Bible says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. The just for the unjust, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, meaning Christ, he is justified, he is perfect, there's no sin in him. The just, the perfect one, dying for the unjust. Who's the unjust? That's me. That's the message of the gospel. The, the, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God in a place called hell. The wages of sin is death. That, that's what the law taught in the Old Testament. <laughs> you break those 613, you're done. You can't, you can't be perfect, and you know you're already not perfect. At least I know I'm not perfect. And so that's a wonderful message of the gospel. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Jesus is the second person of the Trinity in heaven. God doesn't want people to go to hell, and yet they find themselves in sin. They can't get themselves out of it. So God sends Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to be born on Christmas Day. This year, Christmas Day is on Sunday, like the holy. That's the day that Christmas should always be on. Christmas should be on Sunday all the time. But this year, Christmas is on Sunday. So we're going to have a great time on Christmas. Anyway, that's a side note. Look forward to it. Reserve your Sunday morning to come to church, too, as a part of your Sunday. So... Jesus is born on Christmas Day. He lives a perfect life, never sins one time, because he's just. And he dies on the cross. Why is he dying on the cross? Because there are unjust people. The just, the perfect, dying for the unjust. Remember when you're paddling around and you realize that you can't be perfect and you realize that your head goes underwater sometimes and, and you realize that, 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 that there's got to be someone that's perfect outside? That's the just one. And he dies on the cross for the unjust. And when a person has faith, this belief, this convicted belief that Jesus is the Messiah, their sins are washed away, removed, spiritually circumcised. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews, Hebrews says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And without faith it is impossible to please him. But what does that mean? But with faith it's possible to please him. Religious credits don't impress God, but there's one thing that does, faith in the Messiah, faith in Christ. We'll go to verse 10. It says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that is the gospel message right there. And he says here, fellowship of his sufferings. Paul considered himself participating in the participating in the sufferings of Christ. Christ immensely suffered, of course, in his death on the cross, and um, Paul considered himself participating in the, in the sufferings of Christ because, of course, he was in jail and suffering the thing that he did because he was preaching the message of Christ. He wasn't preaching the message of the dogs. He wasn't preaching the message of circumcision. He wasn't pre preaching the message of good. He was preaching the message of Christ. And so now he is experiencing the, this suffering and pain, and so he considers himself partnering with Christ. And not only that, he, not only is he participating with Christ, the fellowship in, in Christ's sufferings, but he also has mentioned in this, in this book that this church, the Philippian church, are also participating in his sufferings, 
which are the sufferings of Christ, because they are a part of the gospel message too, as they're spreading it in their neighborhood and supporting uh, Paul and his ministry as well. The fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Paul was certainly a part of that. He was in prison facing, um, facing a death penalty because of his message of preaching Christ. Verse 11, this is the ultimate benefit. This is, this is, this is the benefit of it all. Verse 11 says, in order that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the ultimate benefit of everything that Paul has said here so far. The ultimate benefit of abandoning the religious credentials is this. The, the, the benefit of, of trading the, the self-sacrifice, considering that as, as loss, losing all that stuff, the benefit is this. The benefit of considering all of our good works as scubula, considering our good works as excrement. The benefit is this. The, 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 Greek, the Greek phrase is literally resurrection from among the corpses. Resurrection from among the corpses. It's describing the rapture. The benefit of all of this is that your body is going to be resurrected. That when your body dies... Your soul immediately goes to heaven, and your body goes to the graveyard. And at some point in time, Jesus Christ is going to come back, and he is going to resurrect from among all the other corpses, people who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, they are going to be resurrected, their body is going to be glorified and unified with their spirit that is in heaven to a glorified body, no more sin, no more cry, no more die, and live forever with Christ. All the other corpses, they remain corpses. This is why we have faith. This is why you abandon all the good things you've done. This is why you get rid of it all. This is why you consider it as excellent because of the surpassing value of the death of, of a perfect just one on a cross for you. And your belief, your faith, your convicted conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah is all that it takes. No works involved, no ties involved, no pants required. Well, I mean, you got to wear pants to church and all, but you can wear shorts too. Required for all of this. Paul knows that, that that's the end game because sometimes we want our life to be better. You know, we like, okay, if I put my faith in Christ, then things are going to get better, but that's not always the case. Our, the Christian end game is, is the resurrection from the dead. That's, that's the end game. That's what we're looking forward to. Look down in Philippians uh, uh, 3, verse 20. That's what he's, he's talking about. This is what he's talking about. Look at verse 20. Chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body from our humble state Transform the body from our, so when Jesus comes back and he starts resurrecting Christians, now I mean you might be alive and you might be, I don't know, working out at the gym or the opposite of that, eating at Del Taco or at a Dodger, I don't know what you'll be doing, but that's your humble state, he'll resurrect that body, glorified body, no more sin, no more crime, and no more die. But your body could have already died in, in another humble state and you got placed underground. Or your family cremated you and spread your ashes all out or around the Pacific Ocean. You're like, how in the world could, how in the world could, could God put all that ashes all back together in my body again? We'll keep reading. Verse 21, he will transform the body from our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. God has the power to do it. I mean, God made Adam out of a speck of dust. <laughs> and so everything else is just gravy. Everything else is just extras. And so this is the goal. The reason that we do all of this is for this. The resurrection from the dead, spending eternity with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what we all look forward to when we put our faith our trust and belief in Christ and get rid of all the religious duty. Now, everyone here is at the same crossroad. We, we all come to this place, we have to make this decision. And the decision is, do I 
hold on to all of the, my religious credit? Do I hold on to how good I am? Do I hold on to that? Um, do, I, do I wear those as a badge on my vest? Am I proud of those things? And I say, when someone asks me, do you know you're going to heaven? And you say, yes, because I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. You could decide that. I mean, if you decide that, you have to ask yourself co- some questions. Do, you, do I have enough credits to offset all the bad ones? And then you have to ask yourself, am I sure about that? So you come to this crossroads, do I hold on to all of this, my good stuff, or do I get rid of all that? Do I lose all of that? Do I consider all that as trash? And do I put my faith, my belief in Jesus as the Savior, as my Savior? That's the crossroads that every single person runs to this crossroads. And the good news is, is I can't make you decide. I, I can't. God could make you decide one way, but he doesn't. He allows you to choose whichever way he want, you want to go, he allows you to choose. Your parents would love to choose for you, but they can't choose for you. You have to pick on your own. Your friends would love to choose for you, but they have their own decision to make. And I know friends like to have their friends do the same thing as their friends do, and the unfortunate aspect is sometimes misery loves company, and so if I'm miserable, I want you to do it like me because I want you to be miserable like me. And so your friends can't choose for you either. You have to decide on, on your own. And I know there's some fear in, in realizing that all the, the good that, that you've done just really, <laughs> it doesn't matter one bit. Um, as, as COVID was winding, I don't know if COVID is di- winding down, I don't know. But as COVID was winding down, kids were going back to school. And they were taking the, the masks off of the kids in school. I read this really interesting article. And this article was uh, about um, a certain age range of kid in school. It was the age range of kids in puberty at school. So 11, 12, 13, 14, like right in there. And the article was about how when the school's were allowing the kids to take off their masks, that this age, 11 to 14, they were not taking their mask off. And so the article was all about why that was, why the kids weren't taking off their masks. And their conclusion was, in talking to a lot of teenagers, was nobody has seen my face in two years. I mean, if you, if you were a part of any of those classrooms, none of those students ever turned on their camera. The teacher's teaching to a blank screen, the kid's looking at a blank screen, and nobody saw anybody's faces for two years. And so now, all of a sudden, they're in front of other people. And they're wearing masks for a little while. And now, all of a sudden, oh no. And the kids are afraid of other people seeing their pimples. And the kids are afraid of the other kids seeing the freckles. And the kids are afraid of um, the, the other kids noticing teeth that aren't completely white or kind of crooked or a crooked smile, and they're going to make fun of them. Because, I mean, these kids, you know, like when they're six years old, you don't care one bit. You go to school with your hair all whatever. You don't change your underwear. It doesn't matter one bit. You don't care. But as soon as you hit 12, boom, like you are socially aware. Like none other. These kids are afraid to take off their masks for for fear that someone's going to notice imperfections about them. And it just just stands out to me because as we're talking about all of this stuff about, you know, where righteousness comes from, I know it can can be a scary thing to to take off your spiritual mask because you've had the spiritual mask on for so long. You know there are deep, dark, evil things in your past. You know you've sinned in your past. You know you've done things you shouldn't have in the past, but you just hope that your current life, like, makes up for it, you know? You just hope, like, when you come into church and how are things going? Oh, yeah, things are going good. You go to your men's small group. Oh, yeah, I memorized my verse and things are good. And you're just hoping that all of those things, you know, like, like uh, just, just mask all of the, the dark, evil stuff in the background because you don't really want to come to grips with any of the stuff that you've done in your background. You're just happy with the mask that's on. The problem is that at some point, the mask is going to come off. In covid the, at some point, the mask came off. 
And the same is true spiritually too. At some point, that the mask that you've put on of the good works, the doing the good things, being a good person to try to cover up all the bad, that mask will come off. The Bible tells us when that is. It's a day of judgment. Every single person will have a day of judgment where the spiritual mask will come off. It says, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now this is referring to the judgment of people who are Christians. There's another judgment for people who are not Christians. It says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. And that's what I'm trying to appeal to your conscience here that to realize that there is, there's not a list of things that you can do except believing your faith in Jesus Christ. Your long list of things, the mask that you've put on, and I know it's scary to take off that mask and, and realize that the, the sin exists. Hey, <laughs> your pastor of sin, I mean, you could say it too, it's all right. And what Jesus promises when you put your faith and trust, I mean, he'll, spiritually speaking, I mean, he'll heal all the stuff that's crooked, you know? <laughs> he'll, he'll, he'll clean up the, the yellow teeth. He, he, he cleans that stuff up. But if you wear that mask of, I'm just going to be good, and I hope people just don't ever notice how bad I am, people might not ever notice, but that mask is going to get taken off in front of the righteous judge. God the Father. And the Bible says that there are, there, there's no one righteous that can get to heaven. No, not one. Only righteous people end up in heaven. Where does righteousness come from? Faith. Faith in Christ. Faith in Jesus, who is the Savior. And so, I hope I've uh, clarified a few things, but hopefully I've appealed at least to your conscience here in understanding how to get to heaven. And maybe you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe you've been a good person. Maybe you've grown up in church or whatever. I mean, you've probably heard this message a hundred times. But today could be the day where you put your faith, your trust, your belief in Jesus as the Savior, your Savior, the just for the unjust. And so I'm going to give you the opportunity to put your faith in Jesus today and talk to him in prayer. So I'm going to ask all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes? It just creates a little separation between you and the person next to you for just, just a minute. You might already know your eternal uh, situation, but you might not know the person sitting next to you, so just give them a chance to, it's not too often where you consider eternal things, you know, and so this is your chance. And so in this moment, if you want to put your faith in Jesus, you just talk to God about this. You don't have to talk to me. In the quietness of your own heart, you can talk to him. And here's what you could say. You could say, God, I know that I've sinned. I know I've done things that I shouldn't have done. And I realize that that separates me from you, and I realize that I'm drowning in imperfection, and I can't fix myself, and I realize that I need a Savior. I need, I need someone perfect. I need someone just. And I believe that's who Jesus is. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that he lived a perfect life, and I believe that he died for me, the just for the unjust. I put my faith in him. I put my trust in his death, that, he, that his death would be a payment for my sin and that I could go to heaven when I die. Well, God, we do thank you as a corporate church family. We thank you for your provision for us. We thank you for your, um, your clarification of these things so that we would never uh, run astray. We thank you that we can, in even small ways, partner in the sufferings of, of you and of Paul and of the Philippian church and still today, the local church is still spreading the gospel and uh, we praise you for that, and we thank you for your work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.